Well, Forest Hills Baptist Church family, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, it's a beautiful day, beautiful fall day. It's going to be warm, so we can be happy about that. And uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we turn to your word, open our hearts, our minds, Lord. We pray that your spirit would be abundantly present, helping us to make connections, illuminating the scriptures for us. And we pray that uh, we would be drawn closer to you, Lord, and closer to one another. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I just wanted to start off with a a brief account. Um, So some of you that know me, uh, or have known me, um, I went to Calvin Theological Seminary for my doctorate, for my Ph.D., um, just like uh, Dr. Whitmer, who you all love and know. And it's, it was a, we were treated very well. It was a, a wonderful, wonderful education. They, they taught us how to, treat, to teach well and um, to study well and research. Um, so I've kind of been interested and I've been following along with the denominations decisions over the last few years. It's, it's been interesting. I don't, I, don't go, I don't go deep into it, so I want to be careful. I'm, I'm one speaking you know, from an outsider's perspective. But uh, the question of biblical permissibility of homosexuality, among other things, has been discussed over the last few years. And last year, despite mounting tensions from within the denomination... Well, from within certain churches within the denomination and obviously um, society, they, in the end, did not capitulate. And they maintained that they were going to continue to uphold their previous doctrinal consideration and um, stay with the impermissibility of homosexual acts. And they were very cautious in doing this, and I guess I can appreciate that. They, if, if you know the denomination, and many denominations, they have a long history of perhaps, you know, uh, if you would look at some of, their, some of their big church splits, I mean, at times you would be like, you're splitting over that? Like, I don't even understand what that says, you know? So I think, I think over, you know, the decades they become... Cautious, and I think people would say maybe too cautious. You know, I, I do appreciate people not wielding truth like a hammer. But in the end, I think they would say, you know, they had, you know, failed over time to wield truth enough. So it, it forces, forces one to wonder, how in the world did they get there? How did they get there? I think, one, I think you, you do put yourselves kind of on a path there. Um, they, the, the most recent probably big debate before that one was uh, women in the pastorate. Should we allow women in the pastorate? Well, if you read 1 Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's pretty clear. But through different reasoning and wrangling, um, some of the churches thought that, you know, Galatians 3.28 or a passage like that, um, Galatians 3.28, there is no difference between free and slave, um, what am I missing? Male and female, what's that? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, Jew and Gentile. You know, we're all one in Christ. And I mean, that's, that's true, but that doesn't talk about pastors. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 3, they, they talk about pastors. And in fact, that's one of the ancient hermeneutical rules, uh, the analogy of Scripture. You have the, the most clear, you have the clearer passage, interpret the less clear. But as soon as you allow 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3 to only be talking to the Ephesian church, which again, you're going to have to do to allow women pastors, then you're starting to let other things bang on the door. For instance, in Romans chapter 1, all of a sudden, all of a sudden you have people using similar arguments for saying that if First uh, Timothy chapter two and three are only for the Ephesian church, saying Romans chapter one is only for the Roman church. And then, if you go that far, then you might say the Great Commission was only for the first generation of the church. And if you even want to go further, you can remove Christ out of Christianity altogether. And say, John 14, 6, on the way, the truth, and life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, that was only for the disciples that he was talking to. So we just have to be careful. Truth and unity are important, but you won't have godly unity without the former. Also, you know, disagreement does not mean hatred. It just doesn't. You can't let people say that. I've had my daughters already had to use that on the bus. Disagreement doesn't mean hatred. So we're going to look at also debates within the church today. Also councils. This balance between truth and unity. You know, truth is, again, is not a hammer to whack someone on the head with. Uh, we are to be compassionate, but at the same time, you know, we are to obey God. That's who we care about. That's who we want to obey. So, let's get into it. We're going to be in Acts 15 this morning. Um, let me give you an intro to the text. Um, some of you practice, some of you have the practice of going through this, the, the sermon notes maybe every day after they're given, after, every day, you know, during the week. But some of you don't, and sometimes you guys forget what we've been talking about. So let me just give you a little bit of an update where we were in chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas have returned to Antioch after their first missionary journey. They excitedly report to everyone what God has done, and they decide to stay there for a spell. And so then we come into uh, Acts chapter 15. And I'm going to read 1 through 21. But some men came through Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, 
Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles, who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So what you see before you are the three questions that are going to help us, help guide our exploration through this text. First, Hadn't the apostles already figured this out? We're going to talk about that. Hadn't they figured this out already? Why are they, why are they going to a council and talking about this? Two, um, why would Peter, Barnabas, and Paul go to a council to discuss and debate something they already knew? And then third, is James being wishy-washy. That's a theological term for, you know, vacillating. I don't know. So, all right. So first question. First question. What is the background here? What is going on? So for this, we need to look at three places in the New Testament. So prepare your Bible to flip around and just sort of scan uh, first is Peter in Acts chapter two, 10 through 11. Then Paul in Acts 11 through 14. And then lastly, Galatians chapter 2, where you see a showdown between Peter and Paul. So first, Acts chapter 10. Remember the situation Cornelius? That's what we're going to be talking about. Um, this episode with Peter, when he is sitting up on a, on a roof, and he is given a command from God, and he, see, he sees this vision of a white sheet coming down, and 
You know, he is told to kill and eat. This happens perhaps seven to ten years prior to the Jerusalem Council. Uh, Peter has, is told by God, what God has made clean, do not call common. He is subsequently brought to the house of Cornelius, where he shares the gospel. Cornelius being a, gent- a God-fearing Gentile. Peter delivers the gospel of Jesus Christ to Cornelius and his people, and the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles. It blatantly falls upon the Gentiles. And here you have what is sort of, which I've said before, a Gentile Pentecost of sorts. In Acts chapter 2, if you go all the way back there, you had the Jewish Pentecost. We normally just call that Pentecost. But then, I think it's in in chapter 8, you have the Holy Spirit descending upon the Samaritans. You have a Samaritan Pentecost. Now, you have the Holy Spirit falling upon Gentiles, which a lot of people in this room should be very happy with. The Holy Spirit came to, uh, to many of us, to the Gentiles. He reports, in chapter 11, he reports back to Jerusalem that the Gentiles have also received the Holy Spirit. He is immediately, immediately attacked by from, some from the circumcision party for having eaten with Gentiles, but, but Peter gives the council this report, and they all celebrate in the end. So it would seem problem solved. Let's look at the, nether, the, the next swath of Scripture. Paul in Acts 11 through 14. In Acts 11, after the persecution arose over Stephen, some made their way to Antioch, and they preached the gospel. A great number believed, and Jerusalem eventually hears about this, and they send Barnabas, that great encourager. For one reason and another, Barnabas goes and finds Paul and brings him to Antioch. And Antioch actually, in in chapter 13, becomes their sending church. Paul and Barnabas go on their first missionary journey. And then when when we go back to the end of chapter 14, they've returned from their first missionary journey. And it is at this point where a number of New Testament commentators think that this is where the showdown in Galatians 2 happens between Peter and, well, between Paul and Peter. So real quick, a little bit of background behind the Galatians. In the book of Galatians, Paul is defending his own apostleship. He also does not appreciate, I mean, it's one of his most strongly worded letters, he does not appreciate the additions people have been making to the gospel. He is attacking the circumcision party. So let me just read very quickly Galatians 2, 11 through 14. And this is the third passage that gives you sort of the background. What's in the backdrop of Acts 15? Remember, Peter, uh, Paul is at Antioch right now. So this is Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas, Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. 
But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? So Peter came to Antioch, according to Galatians. And when these men from James came, Peter started to fall into old ways. He started separating himself from the Gentiles and only eating with the Jews. Paul publicly calls out Peter for knowing better. I just told you what he said in first in, sorry, in Acts chapter 13. He was saying the Holy Spirit came to the Gentiles. And from what we have already observed in 13 and what we're going to observe in 15, or we, if you're, you were really paying attention when I read, you already saw that Peter acknowledges his, that he was wrong. He was wrong for separating himself from the Gentiles. Anyway, our takeaway. Both Peter and Paul take God's revelation to them as authoritative. Not only their personal revelation, but they take the Old Testament as authoritative. So likewise, we should follow in their stead. Scripture is our highest authority, and hopefully you all know that. As we're going to see, the Jerusalem Council takes Scripture as their highest authority. Uh, this, this passage in Amos comes up, and it plays definitively in their, in their conciliar decision. But what is their application? Let's, let's apply this, though. Uh, we don't take Scripture as our highest authority because it is so reasonable or because it's just, it, it just, we take it as our authority because God said it and the Holy Spirit convicts us of it. As you tend to, as you, as you start to follow it, you see how reasonable it is. In fact, if scripture is your main authority, and I've said this a million times, you should be, you should approach scripture being prepared to have what you think of as reasonable, what you think of as moral, to be overturned. Again, you, you should, we should all approach Scripture being prepared to have what we think of as reasonable or we think of as moral to be overturned. So um, I've shared the story, I think, with you before. I remember in my second year of ministry, I was going to teach a lesson on women in the ministry. Women, women in the pastorate, rather. I had some very, I was leading a young adult group. It was a very, it was a very wonderful group. There were some very smart, uh, intelligent, shrewd women in the, in the group. And they wanted to know, like, what is the church's stance? And I had never looked into this before. And because, because I loved them, and I wanted to actually, you know, talk scripture with them, I started doing a series, and I remember what I was going to say. I, I, like, I, I presupposed my conclusion. My conclusion was that, yeah, most of the time, men, we'll use men when feasible. I had some great philosophical arguments from it. I was really into C.S. Lewis at the time, and I was going to use natural law and all these things, 
And then I remember the Friday, the Friday night before the Sunday, I was like, I should probably see what the Bible says. Hmm. Again, what an idiot I was. But I remember, go, I remember reading this uh, article from Douglas Moo where he, he shows that the, the proscription of, of uh, women teaching basically as an elder is, is anchored in the Genesis narrative, the story of the fall. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do with that? I could, find, I could find no argument against him, no, none that would satisfy. And, it, you know, it was, it was clear he was not only talking to the Ephesian church. So my hands were tied. My, this was my own decision. Like, my position must change. But also, that was very helpful for me that day. Because not only did I think, eh, maybe I should go to the Bible first, but it also helped show that the position of elder or pastor is definitely not the, mo- is not the only important role in the church. You know, we had these tremendously talented and gifted, because all people in the church are given spiritual gifts, each, to each. So I had to stop looking at the pastor as like, you know, it, the, the church being a one-man show, or a two-man show, or a three-man show, or four. This is a whole show of a whole body working together. Because women are also given spiritual gifts. So pastor is not, is not the only important job in the church. We're a body. But nonetheless, you have to speak truth. And I'll tell you more about what transpired later. Well, let's, let's go to the next question. Why would Peter, Barnabas, and especially Paul go to a council to discuss and debate something they already knew? Why would they do this? Um, let, me, let me jump it to uh, verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the hearts of the heart, bore witness to them, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So the debate, the Judaizers, the circumcision party. The Jews from Judea that came to Antioch were giving a different gospel. They were saying we are justified through faith and circumcision. Right? Now this party of the Pharisees in chapter 15, are they the same people? Are they different? 
they do not expressly mention salvation. They just simply say that it was necessary um, for them to be circumcised and for, to keep the law of Moses. Now, Peter. Peter argues that there are no Judaistic preconditions or postconditions to being saved, to being justified. The Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles, just as it was the Jews, when they believed. But he points out in verse 11 that even the Jewish Christians are not saved due to any preconditions or postconditions. So even they, even their, what they've been talking about, they don't think that they were saved by, or Peter does not think that they were saved by any preconditions or postconditions. So Peter, again, is, this is a tacit acknowledgement that Peter was wrong in his actions in Galatians chapter 2. Barnabas and Paul, they also relay, relay their experiences. Now, I think there's a few important observations we can take, or observations we can make about apostolic character. One, Peter, who was somewhat recently chastised, he doesn't drag his feet or anything. He just proclaims truth. It was kind of like, yeah, I was an idiot. This is the right way. This is the right thing to believe, and here's why. Paul does not take umbrage at having Barnabas, who is sort of, sort of subordinate to him, asked to speak first. Antioch themselves, they were not necessarily sending delegates to the council because they doubted the theology of Paul and Barnabas. But they wanted to go the extra mile to maintain truth and unity among the churches. In fact, a scholar F.F. Bruce points out that when, um, when Paul talks about his um, eating prohibitions in, in 1 Corinthians, he never brings up this council. He just doesn't think it's necessary. Let's look real quick at uh, verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James does not simply rely on Peter's testimony. Rather, he sees that uh, Peter's testimony comports with Old Testament scripture. God said that his rebuilding of the tent of David would include Gentiles. So there's a few other important observations I want to make. Everyone has their say in an orderly fashion. There doesn't seem to be like a vote. There's no all-church vote, which probably, in honesty, doesn't really bring church unity. But they patiently come to agreement. Um, one New Testament scholar says the following about their approach. Give a church a rule, and you guide them for a day. Teach a church to think, and you guide them for a life. 
So scripture is our highest authority, but we ought to exert ourselves to reach truth and maintain unity. So let's try to apply this. So in many instances, when you help folk see the truth, you actually will get unity. Churches and any body of people, for that matter, must be wary of simply, of simply voting. Education, edification are hard discussions, but they must be had. So back to my story about me teaching about 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3 to this young adult group where we had a section of very interested um, young ladies who wanted to know, you know, is, is the pastorate open for women? I think the reason that we were able to maintain these very independent women, women is, that we were, is that we actually talked through the passages. We talked through them patiently, slowly, and we walked through Scripture. We allowed conversation, we allowed pushback, But in the end, having someone wrestle with the text themselves is better than telling them just this is the way it is. And when you see the ramifications of the hermeneutics, the interpretive moves that you make with, if you try to get rid of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3, I do think you're on a slippery slope for um, even more grievous things. But also, when you aim at unity, if you are aiming at unity at all costs, you will probably lose truth. And this is where I think the church must engage in the hard task of church discipline and not shying away from it. Uh, in fact, this is what I've told you before, this is one of the reasons I came to this church and I stayed at this church I remember we came up to we came to Grand Rapids 2007. Um, like I was a very, I was a very young, 30 year old, very young, 30 year old. But I was newly, kind of newly married. And one, they were just doctrinally sound. But also, I, I like I got the impression. Even the people I didn't maybe agree with or see eye to eye with, I know those people. They would stand in and take care of you know a young, my young family if something were to happen to me. Like I just, that's just the type of people you, you all are. What is more, as being a newly married guy and knowing the importance of accountability, I also knew this was not a church that would be okay with any shenanigans going on within the the marital bounds. They would, call, they would call me into account. They would call her into account. And I've seen that happen here. Some people feel very uncomfortable when we've exercised church discipline. But I think in the past, you know, I just remember uh, a few times Jeff, Jeff leading a very humble but very strong, you know, disciplinary proceedings. And we'd pray for the people. We'd been asked to reach out to these people. Again, it wasn't to bash them over the head with a hammer was to win them back, to bring them back to God's fold. And I wanted that. 
I wanted that accountability. I mean, I've actually, we've actually run into issues. I, I have with the churches I've been involved with or talking to other people. Um, you know, if you ask, what's the point of church membership? Well, accountability. That's one good thing. Because if, if, you if, you if you're not a member, we can't start those proceedings. We'll talk to you. But every time it's been done, it's been done with humility and with use of scripture. Sometimes I feel I'm being too preachy up here. <laughs> I don't know, like, doesn't that sound weird? <laughs> yeah. All right. Next question. Is James being wishy-washy? Here's the fascinating things about James. You know, uh, some church tradition will have that Peter... You know, the Roman Catholic tradition teaches that Peter is the first pope. But if you're like, I mean, going through this, this passage, I'm like, hmm. If you're going to make an argument for anyone, James seems to be a man of great import here. So it's interesting. Therefore, my judgment, that I'm reading in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, good, from sexual immorality, good, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, although maybe carefully worded, I think James is not being wishy-washy. He has definitively ruled against the circumcision party. Though making a strong theological statement, he thinks that they should request that they do not do things that unnecessarily offend the Jews, like eating blood. Now, there is still some debate out there. Um... I looked this up, and you know what, what Wikipedia, the wisdom that it gave me, rare steaks, today that's not blood, that's myoglobin, that, that comes from, that's some sort of protein that turns red when heated or something, that's, you're not sopping up blood, and some of the vegetarians here are like, sorry, sorry, but yeah, we don't, a, a good butcher doesn't have blood commingled throughout the meat. Um, but apparently back then, that could happen. So there is some argument whether or not that is a natural law. Like one should just naturally be, find blood repugnant. I'm not convinced of that. I don't really have any dog in the fight, as it were. But that seems to be... Let's just, for, let's just for argument's sake say that, as, that, is an, that is not a biblical prescription for us today. But James still asks them to refrain from doing it. He still asks them to refrain from doing it. Um, he's, he, he, one, he knows it will make, the, make it harder with the Jews that are surrounding them. And then second it will unnecessarily hinder the relationships with the Jews, who they want to bring in. He knows that you can't make unbiblical mandates. 
But he, you can make requests that people do not unnecessarily hinder the promulgation, the advancement of the gospel. You can do that. And that's what I think James is doing here. So, um, takeaway. Here's our takeaway. Scripture is our highest authority, but we ought to exert ourselves to reach truth and maintain unity without sacrificing the former for the latter and the latter for what is not actually truth. Stare at that for a moment and sort of absorb it. See what I'm trying to say. Scripture is our highest authority, but we ought to exert ourselves to reach truth and maintain unity without sacrificing the former, truth, for the latter, unity. So without sacrificing truth for unity, and unity for what is not actually revealed truth. And this last portion can be a rather, uh, just can be a little difficult. Um, I do know one of our sister churches in the area. They did not sacrifice unity for what I would call biblical preference, or for, for, for their, what, is, what is just preference. So there was a church in our, in, our, in our brotherhood, our fellowship, that was just struggling badly. They finally found someone to be their pastor, and this person was perfect. Just great. And, like, there was celebration, and, like, people, in the, they were getting, like, excited, and then one or two elders just, you know, in a casual conversation, they asked this prospective pastor, what did he think about the consumption of alcohol? And he said, well, not a drinker myself, but I think that it can be consumed appropriately and biblically. Well, the elders did not like what was just said. And for like a month or two, things were on a knife's edge. Some of the, some of the other elders were like, are you like, you can't, you can't turn this guy away from that. Where is in the Bible? Like, you know, and, and eventually, um, the other elders, they gave in. They're like, we, we can't make it actually a very good argument from the Bible for saying never to drink alcohol. But it was, their, it was their willingness to maintain unity for what is not actually provable biblical, a provable biblical argument. And now that church is, that church is thriving. The church is thriving. But we also know church bodies or denominations that have gone against this principle and they've eventually sacrificed truth for unity. Uh, the UMC, United Methodist Church, they finally split over the issue of ordination of unrepentant homosexuals, among other things. How did they get there? Well, I think they continued to endure more and more theological and more liberals for the sake of unity. Their people probably weren't trained. I mean, some of my favorite people that I knew from seminary were United Methodist pastors, and they really did not like what was going on in the denomination. And they were ready to fight. They would meet, you know, they would meet so-called shepherds, other so-called shepherds, and they would be like, 
what big eyes you have. It's just better to watch the sheep with. What big teeth you have. New Testament Joel Green, is he related to Michael Green? Maybe, I don't know. (laughs) Writes this, progressive morality and progressive thinking often go hand in hand with progressive deafness to the voice of God. Progressive morality and progressive thinking often go hand in hand with progressive deafness to the voice of God. I think when people take some principle like love, tolerance, inclusion, and make that the guiding authority that they have to institute every point in the Bible, they actually take away the Bible's authority, and you actually never learn what godly love is, what godly inclusion is, what godly intolerance is, what godly tolerance is. The true believers in the UMC, uh, mostly, most of them will leave. Some will go down with the ship, you know, fighting the good fight. But probably in the end, you're going to have a lot of, you know, self-congratulating folk who are just, just like the idea of being religious. Right? As the true believers leave. But in the end... I'll just repeat the gist of this, of, of uh, Acts chapter 15, or what I've gleaned from it. Scriptures are highest authority, but we ought to exert ourselves to reach truth and maintain unity without sacrificing the truth for unity and unity for what is actually not revealed truth. Let's pray. Lord God, you give us, our, you give us your word. You gave us your son, and we're so thankful for that. Um, How do we, I just do not realize how people go, uh, let a day go by. They go to sleep, wondering if they'll wake up, Lord, and not knowing, having a good idea of what will happen. Lord, help this church to be a people who reaches out to their neighbors, to bring people in to share the good news because we love them. Help us, help us to have the fine balance of, of, of always speaking truth and love, um, not being wishy-washy, not, not using it as a hammer to knock people over the head with, but help us to be strong, Lord. Unwielding, but out of love, Lord, and, and the desire to have people come to Christ. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.